Welcome back to another episode of Writing for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the authors transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick. I'm an editor and author. And I mentioned this in our last episode, but I wanted to say it again uh, in case you've been listening to this for a while and you're kind of going, was there a name change? Did I miss something? There was a name change. It used to be called Reading for a Change. Now it's called Writing for a Change. And we just made that that shift because basically, you know, in one way, this podcast is my excuse to talk to my favorite authors. And so we, we tend to be author centric and asking about their writing process and why they write, their motivations for writing, how writing has transformed them and their readers. And so we're kind of doubling down on that. Uh, tell us what you think about the new the new name. Uh, but just in case there's any confusion, I wanted to clear that up. And for people that listen to the first season of this podcast, today's guest will be very familiar. Hannah Anderson actually joined me as a co-host for some of those early episodes, and we had a great time. Um, and of course, even though I know Hannah is probably most proud of that, that was sort of, I'm sure, the zenith of her of her uh, career. Uh, she's done some other stuff too. Uh, including write best-selling books, uh, including Made for More, Humble Roots, All That's Good, and her latest book, which is hot off the press. I'm holding a copy right here, and it is, it's, yeah, it's brand new, and it is absolutely beautiful. We'll talk about it more in a moment. Uh, it's called Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. Um, Hannah uh, lives in the... Um, um, I'm going to butcher this. Oh, no, yeah, I was going to say Appalachia, which is true, but the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia with her husband, where they do rural ministry together and raise three children. So they got a lot going on. Hannah, it is a joy and privilege to welcome you back to the podcast. Well, I am so glad to be back with you, Drew. Thanks for letting me come back. Of course. Thank you for for agreeing to it. Um, I want to talk about this brand new book of yours, Turning of Days. The first thing that I noticed that I think most people will notice about it is just how beautiful the book is visually. Um, it is, uh, I wish uh, readers or listeners could see it and I'm going to encourage them to go do just that. Uh, but it's kind of a, almost like a coffee table sized book, almost as wide as it is long. It's got gorgeous illustrations on the cover and throughout the pages. It's got like leaves, a flower and a turtle on the front. Um, and I understand and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the illustrator on this project uh, is pretty close to you. You, you guys. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tell, tell me about that experience of writing and illustrating this book together. Well, first, I just want to affirm um, what you say about it being a beautiful physical book. And I feel like I can say that even though I wrote the words because I had very little to do with the artistic (laughs) sensibilities of it. So I just want to give a shout out um, both to Nathan, my husband, who illustrated it. And I'll say more about that in a minute, but also to Eric Peterson, who works internally at Moody. Um, When we first started talking about this book, he knew instinctually what we wanted and the direction to take. And it was just such a dream to be able to have the team capture the vision and him really um, know what choices to make and how to set it up. And he, he just brought so much to the final product and to the experience of the book. So I wanted to make sure to give credit where credit's due. 
um, with Eric. That's awesome. He is, he is the dark genius behind so yes. many beautiful products and I'm sure he'll appreciate that shout out. But my husband's artwork really was, um, or is key to the experience of the book. And, and I remember when I first approached the team at Moody, I was ready to write another book. I, I kind of knew I wanted it to be, um, a devotional, I, I wanted it to be about the natural world. And then I said to them, oh, and I want my husband to illustrate it. <laughs> and looking back, I, I just wonder how that went internally. Like if yeah, everyone like, just I really do this? Uh, nodded along and said, oh, that's sweet. How are we going to <laughs> deal with this? But thankfully, um, my husband, Nathan, actually is gifted and talented as um, an artist. And this particular um work, this particular uh, composition and subject matter of natural world illustrations is right in his sweet spot. So he's a very detailed artist. He's much more um, scientific in some respects in the way he approaches his art. And he just has a deep, rich, lifelong um, attachment to the natural world. So it was a really good process to work with him. I also did have a few questions at the beginning, how it would work out. Um, and we had our moments. We definitely had mm -hmm. our creative differences at points, but I feel like what this book has um, ended up being is really the best of who we both are. And that's just such a joy. That is. And, and it really, it really shows in the experience of reading the book. Uh, like you said, it's a physically beautiful book. I also want to say, though, that the words are beautiful, too. Um, to give listeners just a little taste of of uh, your prose in this book, which honestly, I just think is is downright uh, Annie Dillard-esque uh, <laughs> and um, who's one of my favorite writers. So that's a high compliment. Um, let me just read a couple of paragraphs here just to give people a taste for for um, this in, from early on uh, in the book. And, and just to give people an idea, it's structured according to the seasons. And she's talking about nature and gleaning these awesome insights about what nature tells us about God. Okay, so you write, even though I can't see it, the ground is right now teeming with life and the potential for life. And perhaps the best way to understand the soil under my feet is to think of it as an ecosystem painstakingly designed to support flourishing. It regulates moisture and provides a home for microbes. It filters pollutants and reserves and reserves nutrients. And if that's not enough, it literally roots plants to the surface of the earth. Don't let the ubiquity of dirt fool you. It is a wonder, which gives me pause when I think that God, when he wanted to make a creature in his own likeness, stooped down and took a handful of dirt. I once had someone object to my choice to describe human beings this way because she felt that it devalued us. I thought, but did not say that she did not understand soil. To be marked as soil is no slight. To be marked as soil is to speak of potential and life and vitality. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. I love that. Um, and yet, right at the beginning of the book, you acknowledge that there's a paradox inherent in this kind of book because you're using, you know, um, you're describing God's other book, as it's been called, that is nature, but you're using uh, uh, the medium of, of words. So can you talk a little bit about that? Why do we need to read about something that we can just kind of walk into? You know, we can walk through a forest or down a beach. Uh, why is it important, at least for you, to read about the beauty of nature? 
Well, you set that tension up so perfectly. Um, the the testimony of nature is designed to be encountered without words, and and that's even what the scripture tells us in in Psalm nineteen that they uh, they do not use words. So the heavens declare, but they don't use words to declare whatever they're declaring. And so there is this inherent tension in trying to write about nature, about things that nature doesn't use words to say. And so I wanted to be conscious of that as I was writing. And in some respects, I had to change my own approach and my own style of writing. Um, Readers who have read my other books, I think they'll recognize this book. They'll recognize it as a Hannah Anderson book, but they will also notice that there's a lot more description. Um, There's a lot more time taken to explain or paint a picture or set up this natural world phenomenon. And part of that is because I felt like it was my responsibility as a writer to describe what nature was saying. Hmm. And so it's a lot less didactic. It's a lot less direct and to the point or, or making some kind of ideological argument. I mean, I do that because I can't escape not <laughs> doing that. <laughs> but I felt like as an author, being faithful to the testimony of creation and what God was doing in it meant being almost a person who was capturing and conveying what was happening mm. rather than adding a whole lot of my commentary to it. Yeah, no. And I think you do that really well. There is sort of a um, a slower pace to this book. And like you said, I mean, you definitely make points, but the book itself doesn't have a, a sort of an argument that develops throughout it. it. It's basically a collection of these beautiful essays divided up by season. Um, but I, I feel like it matches sort of the the slower rhythm of nature. So I think you did that really well. One one tough thing, especially right now, because I feel like nature's been throwing us a lot of curveballs recently, whether it's mm. forest fires <laughs> where I live out here in the West Coast um, or, or big storms um, or the coronavirus, right? Which let's face it is, is part of nature. Um, what can those more destructive uh, things, the things that we lament and avoid and fear about nature teach us about God? Well, one thing I wanted to be certain to do in this book is not to romanticize nature. Mm-hmm. Um, to be yeah, sentimental about Yes. I I didn't want this to be a sentimental reflection of nature. It is very sentimental in parts, and absolutely it reflects my own personal history and emotional connection to creation. But I wanted to give sufficient awareness to the fact that nature is both violent and aggressive and broken itself, Mm. and that there are parts of nature groaning under the curse. And I don't know if I would classify it as rebellion quite the same way as human rebellion is against God, but the natural world around us is not in the state that it was created. Right. And it is hoping and longing and waiting for the redemption as Mm. much as we are. And so I think we have to be honest about that that to to go out into the natural world is to encounter a um 
a book, like you mentioned, that is testifying and declaring the greatness of God. And sometimes it's declaring it in ways that we uh, maybe don't expect. It's counterintuitive. So, so even the natural disasters or something like a virus is testifying to the fact that God is the God who created this world. And even though we see this level of power and we see this level of, um, you know, just seemingly untamed wilderness, he is God over that too. Mm -hmm. And one day creation will bow the knee to its creator as much as we will. And I think you see hints of that in Jesus's ministry when he, um, you know, calms the storm or he does miracles to hold back the curse in people's bodies and to confront disease and to uh, heal leprosy. And so if we don't look at these kind of more broken or, um, I don't know, troubling dimensions of the natural world, I think we will miss the greatness of the God who is the creator and ruler of the natural world. Mm, yeah, no, that's so well said. And of course, the Bible does that as well, right? Uh, especially in the book of Job, uh, looking at the, sometimes the, the terrifying nature of nature uh, to point to God's power uh, and character. I was really moved by the story that you told over a couple chapters in the book. Um, well, two stories, really. There was the one that was kind of a little bit amusing in a way, uh, and yet a little scary about a, a bird, a robin, that had made a little nest on the, I think it was the axle of your uncle's tractor. And the dilemma there was, okay, what do we do? And it had four little eggs in there. Um, and so they had to use the tractor. Uh, and, and so they had a, a bit of a dilemma there. You also talked about a far more serious thing, and that was your mother's uh, major heart attack. And you weave those stories together. I'm wondering, um, and I know this is tough, this is personal, if you could briefly recap those stories and what you learned about waiting through those um, ordeals? Well, um, last year in April, I believe, um, I was woken up in the middle of the night by my phone ringing. And it's a rare thing for me to have my phone beside my bed. I usually keep it plugged in in a different room. Um, I just like that distance at night. But for some reason, I had it um, in my room and it rang. I think it was like three o'clock in the morning. I woke up, I grabbed the phone and my dad was on the other end and was um, telling me that my mother, who I think she's in her mid sixties. So she's, she's not, um, you know, terribly old right. <laughs> in any no, respect, exactly. um, had suffered a massive heart attack and that she was unconscious and that they were trying to um, perform CPR and bring her back to consciousness. But wow. by the time we had resolved that conversation, he came back, called me back, and he had told me at that point that they couldn't bring her back and that she had passed. Oh, man. And um, as soon as he said that, within like 30 seconds, <laughs> um, a doctor had brought him back to say, we found a pulse. Now, she had been unconscious for 30 minutes. And at that point, we knew that whatever condition she was in, even if they had brought her back, that there was no guarantees about anything. 
whether she would survive or whether, um, you know, what damage she had endured. But, you know, not knowing what would happen, um, I rushed home because my parents live about five, six hours from where I do now. And my siblings all came back and um, we rushed to the hospital. And this was in the middle of COVID restrictions, but it was a small country hospital and they um, they believed that she would not make it. So they let us all in for the first, I would say, 12 hours we were allowed to be with her. And we mm. had nothing we could do. There was nothing right. to do except wait and watch and pray. And um, eventually we all went back to the the house where I was raised, my siblings were raised, and um, this is family land in southwestern Pennsylvania. And within, I don't know, a few hours, they called us and said they were taking her to the city hospital and they were going to risk life flight. But because she had to be um, there, we would not see her. There was there was no way with the COVID restrictions that we would sure. be able to be with her. So we spent the next two weeks at the house together, relying on phone calls from an hour away. And at the same time that we were in that process of waiting, um, we also, I remember at points where the doctors were telling us previously that there was no hope, like this was just a, a matter of time. Yeah. And that at some point we would be called upon to make a decision uh, to remove life support. And I remember that decision weighing on my dad and on us. And we just, we decided in that process um, to just wait, to to just not make the decision. And what you mentioned about these birds, because this is a parallel thing I was experiencing. I'm going through this with my family. At the same time, we had come home. I'm at home with nothing to do because we're just waiting. Mm. And so I, I did what I did when I lived at home, which is just start working. You just start you know, everybody pitching and doing their things. And and this is family land. So my uncles um, also tend uh, stuff there. And one of the things they needed to do was to, to mow a field. But as you mentioned, they discovered that their tractor, a, a robin, had built a nest and laid eggs in it. And it was the same dilemma of what are you to do? You have two very un desirable options, you know, um, you can move it, but you would risk destroying the bird's nest and the eggs. Um, what, what happens if you do nothing? And so my uncles chose what we chose, which was to do nothing to, to hold back our need to make a choice and to alter it. So my uncle drove the fields with, um, a bird's nest perched on his axle and it was the most ridiculous, you know, mundane thing. But that became kind of a symbol of hope for me over those two weeks. And I would go mm. down, I would walk down from my dad's place, I'd walk down to the tractor every day and kind of check on the mother bird and see how she was doing. And gradually over the next two weeks, um, God did a miraculous recovery um, in my mother's body. And eventually awesome. brought her home to us. But then just because he does what he does, um, we also found that the robin's eggs hatched and mm. 
these baby birds that had been carried around on this tractor across the fields, uh, which really didn't really face much um, hope, also were brought to life. And and it just was this question for me of human uh, will, agency, power. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do we actually control and how much are we learning to wait on not just what nature will do, you know, to let nature take its course. But how much are we waiting on nature's God? And how do we learn to sit and rest and be patient while we're waiting when everything in us wants to do something or make some decision mm-hmm. to change the course of what we think will happen? That's so good. And and it's so good. I followed some of this online about your mom, uh, but just so amazing. Uh, to hear uh, about her recovery, because that is truly miraculous. If it, if you know anything about these kinds of things, when someone, uh, you know, doesn't have a pulse for that long, uh, the prospects are not good. So it's nothing short of a miracle. Uh, so, so grateful for that. And you're so right about the, you know, when it comes to our will and our agency and decision-making, I think we're conditioned, we're, we're told, you know, you need to be decisive, um, the fate of your, of your life is sort of in your hands, uh, and, and what decisions that you make. And to some degree, that's true, right? We want to be wise. We want to make good decisions. You've written about discernment, uh, as well. Um, and yet at the end of the day, we're at the mercy of God. We're, we're subject to his, his, uh, providence. Um, and that's not always a bad thing. In fact, if we can learn to accept it, it's a very good thing. Uh, I'm curious about your writing process during this book, because it's such a different book. Most of the time, um, well, I mean, this has been the case for me when I'm writing a book, uh, you know, I'm in, in my house and uh, surrounded by uh, stacks of books on uh, relevant topics. Um, and so it's a very cerebral sort of thing where you're just in other books. Um, but I'm guessing for this one, I mean, and, and you, you describe this in the book, you had to head outside. Tell us about um, the process. Right. Well, the book actually took shape in the middle of um, COVID. So we were writing and drawing together when we were all kind of locked down. Um, Of course, I had already had the shape in mind. I had already determined it would be around the seasons. I knew the direction a lot of the essays would take. I kind of knew the subject matter. Um, But being home during that time also um, forced us to be more local in some respects sure. to to really be present in our place, like this forced sense of place, literally. Um, so that was actually something that worked in our favor that we had no other options but to give attention to the spaces where we were. I think two other things that come to mind in in writing this book versus the other ones is um, I did rely a lot on experiences and memories. And so um, this is a more personal book in the writing. Um, And I actually had a friend, oh, maybe a year ago, he was teasing, but it was advice that I took to heart. And he said, Hannah, you need to write it about 75%. Um, and I was like, no, I'm an A plus kind of girl, you know, <laughs> right to your best. That's, like a, that's a B minus, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's like a C. I mean, goodness, I'm not going to write 75%. But I think what he meant, and for me, 
um, it meant letting go a little bit, you know, just Mm. letting go of the control over the words, letting go of my need for the words to do certain things. And I'm not talking about craft. I just mean that um, I pulled back a little bit. Mm. And I think that space created a margin for creativity that I um, had not experienced as fully in other seasons of writing. Um, So that was a marked difference. And then just in the process, another feature of, of creating this was I just got to do a lot of reading about natural world phenomenon. Right. Um, You know, typically to learn, right. right, Yeah. (laughs) Typically my um, desk would be staffed with theological books. And, you know, obviously this is theological and I, and I hope it's um, truthful, theologically truthful, but um, the research I had to do was more outside of the realm of ideas and more within the natural world. And so that was Mm. very refreshing. It was just such a delight to be able to uh, chase down certain phenomenon and learn and ask the question of, I observed this in the leaf you know, it turns red or it turns red. Why does that happen? What is going on at a cellular level that I see this phenomenon with my eye, but what's behind that? And so that was just really a delightful process. I'll bet. And I think that leads into my next question for you, which was um, in, in what were there ways that writing on this topic specifically contributed to your own transformation, your own spiritual journey? Mm. Well, like I said, I think one of the things that happened in my writing was I took my hands off a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, that could only happen trusting that God would step in. Um, I don't think like the writing was doing itself. I think I was just making a little more room for um, the Holy Spirit to (laughs) do what he was going to do with the words. Um, So that was definitely a difference in the process. Um, I think what I came away with was just a a renewed curiosity and a sense that I had just scratched the surface, Mm -hmm. that this was a conversation that I could trace down for the rest of my life and never exhaust it. Um, And so there was kind of a joy there that I was embarking on something that didn't necessarily have an end, you know, like it, this yeah. was um, maybe the first, but it, it, it could be a way of thinking and moving and engaging the world that could last for the rest of my life on this earth and into eternity. Oh, that's beautiful. And it is, it was such a, a refreshing experience for me reading this book. I mean, I got it a few days ago, only I'm halfway through. And I'm reading it slowly on purpose because it feels like that's the kind of book that it is. Um, and but I'm just really enjoying it. And at the risk of making this weird and personal, um, I had a mental health crisis recently. Uh, and was it mid-December? Um, you know, I basically had a nervous breakdown. I know that's not the technical name for it, but basically it was extreme anxiety and I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Uh, the silver lining there was that I lost 15 pounds. So <laughs> I'll take that win. But anyway, the the reason I mention that is because as you know, and I'm still kind of climbing out of that, doing a lot better. 
but it made me reexamine my media habits. Uh, and, and what I'm talking about is I realized I was consuming too much cable news for one. I was listening to a ton of podcasts that were mainly about politics or um, some Christian podcasts where it was mainly fighting about certain issues. Uh, I would listen to debates between atheists and Christians. And, and this is all good stuff. It's like catnip for me. I'm just drawn to those kind of topics. Um, but I found that they, and, and then I read like every article I could get my hands on about the coronavirus and, you know, what was going to happen. And I think that contributed, unfortunately, uh, it, it kind of built up to a breaking point. Um, and when I, when I read this book, um, you know, I got away, took out the AirPods out of my ears, uh, backed away from the computer, <laughs> grabbed your book and, and settled into a, a chair and just slowly read. And it was really a tonic for my soul just to sit down, to read the beautiful prose about nature, to reflect on the character and the nature of God as well was exactly what I needed. So thank you for writing it. It's been a huge blessing to me personally. I know it will be to others. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us. And I want to um, urge listeners to grab a copy of this beautiful, powerful book. Uh, again, the title is Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season and Spirit by Hannah Anderson. If you head over to moody.com, um, sorry, moodypublishers.com uh, is the URL you want to use. Uh, you can get 20% off of the book right now. Again, that's Turning of Days. I'd also encourage you uh, to connect with um, Hannah online. You can go to her website, which is sometimesalight.com and her Twitter handle, which is the same, uh, sometimesalight. Be sure to follow her on Twitter. She's the master of the Twitter thread. Um, the, these really, you know, thoughtful, uh, interesting uh, takes on various subjects. If you're looking for, you know, dad jokes and dumb jokes in general, you need to follow me. But if you're interested in these really beautiful, nuanced takes on culture and theology, follow Hannah at her handle um, at Sometimes a Light. Also, I want to um, thank listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please leave a, a rating or review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That helps us out a ton because people are able to discover us. We're still a fairly new podcast, and so we appreciate that. Uh, and I just want to thank you, Hannah, for joining us. Um, thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. And until next time, keep reading and keep writing. Keep writing.